This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Based in Taupo, ePro is a growing, family-owned business that delivers predator control. The company won the top BNZ Overall Business of the Year Award at the 2023 Unison Great Lake Taupo Business Awards recently, as well as awards for excellence in strategy and planning and excellence in community contributions, and was highly commended in the Employer of the Year category. We asked why this low-key company decided to enter awards for the first time. Business awards were something we weren't sure we wanted to do. Mm. Uh, it's nothing you know that we had done before, and uh, you know we knew that we had a really good business here. We knew that we had great uh, staff engagement, and uh, our culture was good, and uh, we did a lot of work in the community, and uh, done a lot of work over the last four or five years on the strategic direction of the business. Uh, you know, so so when uh, when Kane and I had a, had a conversation about whether or not we would would do this you know he was in the in the no camp and I was in the yes camp and we we um yeah had a bottle of whiskey one night and, and I, I won <laughs> um and then uh, the process of going um going into the awards was really rewarding because we got a lot of staff engagements around mm. you know what we were doing and why we were doing it and that these uh external judges were going to come into the business and have a look at our systems and processes and people and, and actually you know we thought that we had a good thing but they were actually going to measure us on it um, so that was great. We got nominated for um, four awards, uh, and we thought, well, we've got a good good crack at this one. So we bought a couple of tables, and we got got some parents along, and, and it was a real big family affair. And you know, we had 20, 20 something uh, people there, and, and then we ended up winning quite a few things, which was amazing to be on stage with mm. all those staff and family, um, and, and of course, yeah, great morale booster. The company has just been through a phase of um, updating itself. I think so. We've you know we've been really clear about the, the roles that we want people to be doing, the, the technology that they, they can use to assist them to do their, their jobs, and that has now got us to a point where we can scale up or down um, with minimum effort. Uh, and we've got some really well-trained people that are pretty um, pretty cemented in their roles. So uh, next five years. We will certainly be taking opportunities to grow. You know, there's lots of uh, upcoming work around wallabies. Um, there's, uh, you know, plenty of, of work coming through with the Predator Free 2050 program. So um, lots of other um, uh, Predator Free programs are starting to come on board and there's actually some pretty cool ones here which are close to Topol. Uh, so we'll be looking to get involved in those. Um, but I mean, otherwise, you know, we, we are uh, strongly dependent on our government clients and uh, we take what opportunities we can, and it's not about winning all the work, but it's probably about winning the best work, uh, and the work that suits us the most. So we'll, we'll keep focusing on that, and if that leads to growth, great. Um, and if the money's not there, then uh, we will survive, and we will keep looking after our people. So 
So awareness, I think, is a, is a key part of that predator-free um, journey. Um, the other stuff is the big projects that they have on have in place. You know, there's places like Waiheke Island and, and, and others in Taranaki and um, Mahia Peninsula. So there's many projects that are doing some really cool isolated um, work. Um, and what that means is those core areas are then the starting point of a wider um, control project. Will all of New Zealand be predator-free? I think it's probably a huge challenge and, and probably not achievable. But what I do see is core areas with predator-free and then a progression out through the wider landscape of, of New Zealand, you know. And then if we can have 15 of those, those great core areas all through New Zealand, you know, that's a great start and a great opportunity for, for bird life and forests to, to restore themselves uh, because there's not that constant pressure from predators, you know. And that flow-on effect is, is everything you see at the places like Zealandia and Wellington, you know. That bird life is now extending out into the wider Wellington environment, you know. So, so definitely achievable um, on scale. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Gentrac's share price is up nearly 300% in just over a year, climbing almost as fast as it fell in late 2019 on the back of regulatory action in its key UK utilities market. London-based American Gary Miles, who took up the CEO role in October 2020, spoke to Will Mace for this week's shoeshine around Gentrac's turnaround story so far. So it's been an interesting week because we had our earnings last week, and uh, then we had a strategy day. And one of the themes was from investors was, we thought this was a turnaround play, but now it sounds like a growth play. And um, I never really thought of it as a turnaround play. I always thought of it, hey, there's 60 great customers in a few countries, but the world's gonna transform, and this is a good launch pad to do this around the world. Now, we needed to turn some stuff around in order to make that launch pad a good springboard, so to speak. Um, so we needed to you know, refresh the stack. We needed to be a lot more proactive around customers and you know, making sure that their needs are proactively understood. Uh, we needed to move up in the conversation away from just, just working with IT to also working with the business. So what are their business imperatives? How are they trying to drive change, customer experience? Um, and then I think we needed to also, we're really, really good at doing tier two size players, you know, 300, 500 million meter points. We, we can just go that have B2C and B2B. We're really, really good at it. And by the way, there's a lot of players like that around the world, utilities. Um, and then we backed into servicing some big tier ones but we never really had been in selling to them. And so the whole mindset of, you know, working with also the largest players in the world to help them transform uh, was something that we needed to get into the business. Um, and I think we've done all of it pretty well. So those are the main things. And now we're just, how do we just keep growing our core markets, but also how do we help globally this industry move away from carbon and to just better energy usage and consumption. 
No, the, the, the exciting thing for us in this space is because it was, and I tell this story sometimes, but literally the IT landscape and utilities was very static. It was a man or woman in a van running around every six months getting your meter read and then giving you a flat bill. And now, you know, if you have solar and battery and you're pumping power into the grid and consuming it from the grid and big industries doing kind of crazy new things, you know, the, the, the whole IT landscape is now needing to replatform and re, re kind of uh, engineer itself. So I think that, that, that opportunity to go tackle that is right in front of the whole industry. And so we're, we're out there telling that story and, um, and people are pretty determined to get off the old stuff. But the weird thing is, is since it didn't replatform, you know, every decade, like other industries, there's not that many competitors in the utility space. SAP has actually declared their utility energy stack end of life by 2027. So if you're a retailer right now, there's a good chance that you have that stack and you need to upgrade to their new version, which is a brand new transformation. So I think at that point, it's prudent for them to look around and see what alternatives exist to SAP, because that stack that they have isn't just working for energy, it works for manufacturing and finance and healthcare and all this other stuff. So the energy market's pretty unique and uh, we would argue that uh, it's not really that fit for purpose for the energy future. Um, but well, yeah, we're competing against them and we're, we're, we're comfortable with it. Um, so in general, uh, government regulation and government investment and government subsidies for clean technologies, I think they're good things and they're good for the industry. It doesn't mean like, like anything, it's not always a perfect track record. I think with Three Waters, uh, the, the overall Three Waters program, not just the software licensing part, is coming under review. Um, I can tell you that the water situation here in New Zealand needs to be addressed. No one around the world will have enough money to fix water infrastructure to the level it needs to be fixed. I mean, I just came out of you know, Tasmania, where we have some water customers are in uh, Northwestern Territory, and literally in some of those places, they're losing 25% of their product, just leaking out the, out the pipes. Sewage problems, it just is enormous. What we wanted to say about Three Waters is whatever program the government embarks on to modernize the water infrastructure, which needs to happen, let's just let's let's you let's choose the best technologies that take us in the future. Let's don't spend a whole bunch of money in a closed process on old technologies. And so suddenly in 10 years, we'll be like, wait a minute, all that stuff is so antiquated. We need to do it again. It's just not what we should be spending our money on. Yeah, you know, the airport space is really exciting. Basically, the way to think about our airport space is from the time a plane lands until it takes off, we manage the airport operations. As a matter of fact, at our strategy days, we had the, the CIO, the chief information officer, and the general manager for Sydney Airport come speak to us. And it's fascinating. All the people flows, how do you deal with the queuing and securities, and how do you open queues and close queues, and how do you manage your staff? Because the airports went in the pandemic, they reduced their staff a lot, and now they're trying to automate more and more, and so how do you manage that? How do you deal with, our system manages all the gates, so it determines where planes should go, how long they should stay there, what's the billing between the airlines and the, 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 the uh, airport itself. It's a really, it's a mission critical system. Um, and that industry was a rule of 40, meaning it was 
if you combine its revenue and profit, it was more than 40% uh, growth before the pandemic. Then it got very quiet and actually shrunk in terms of revenue. So it was a drag on our growth during the uh, pandemic. Now it's really back to growth. And we see lots and lots of interest and opportunity in that space. Well, we have $49 million of cash. We have no debt and we have a $25 million facility to take extra cash if we want it. So I think one of the questions I get is, are we going to pay a dividend? Um, and what I told them is I said that, look, over the last three years, it wouldn't have made sense for us to do an acquisition. We need to get that springboard I talked about earlier, you know, kind of in the right shape. Now we are looking at that. I'd like some time to look at that and see if we can put that money to the right use. Um, if we don't see something that creates really good value, because we're going to be smart about it, then uh, we'll probably, you know, review that dividend policy and do something with the cash that's shareholder uh, friendly, obviously. Look, I, I went to the board and I said, we're, you know, we, we, I, we like this job. Um, but it's tricky, you know, we're, a lot of time zones, lots of moving parts. And uh, if we more than double the value of the business, you know, we'd like to, I'd, I'd like to be able to attract and maintain a, a top team. And if you look at in the private equity space, the remuneration package wasn't really on the same level as private equity actually provides. It just was a little unique for the New Zealand public markets. Um, I think the investors saw it as a win-win. By the way, we have, if we don't succeed with both our earnings per share and increasing the share price, both of them, then we don't get anything on stock options. So we, it was a zero, you know, it was all risk, but some decent reward. And I think that sent a message that says we are, we believe in ourselves that we can deliver this. Um, and if we do, everybody's going to be better off financially on this, which is a win-win. And so I think we had 84% of the voting voters voted in favor. Um, one thing that I find is you're never going to make everybody happy all the time. So we just, now that we have an agreement, we're just pressing on. Uh, I do think we tried to listen to everybody and make the right decisions and craft things the right way. So it was accepted. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Is the new Minister of Space a waste of taxpayers' money? With us is NBR economics columnist Hilmari Schultz. So Hilmari, you're pro-space camp? Um, hi, Jonna. Absolutely, I am pro-space camp. I think the newly minted Minister of Space is a great idea. Um, it's promising to see our government leaning into the high-tech and aerospace industry. Uh, we talk about diversification of our economy in this country for, you know, the last hundred years. And um, this would definitely be a, a step in the right direction. What should Judith Collins' priorities be? I think Judith Collins' priorities should be is to create an enabling environment to attract more of the aerospace entrepreneurial sector. Um, you know, we talk about Rocket Lab all the time. 
you know, they have a valuation of about $2 billion. Um, they bring in so much credibility and they are small entrepreneurial entity. We need um, more of those entrepreneurial aerospace companies to settle in New Zealand. So with Judith Collins firmly in that position, will that help facilitate jobs, innovation? Um, I hope so. I, I definitely hope so. Um, I think especially around the job sector, uh, Deloitte did a study a couple of years ago and uh, they say that the aerospace and related sectors employ about 5,000 people. So this is a, a very credible industry that we can grow and create in New Zealand to be able to provide that high-tech skills to stay in New Zealand. What does this sector provide at the moment for the economy? Um, Deloitte did um, in that same study, so it is a couple of years um, old, but it's about $1.7 billion a year that they create in revenue um, for our economy. So is it about attracting people from overseas or growing homegrown talent? I think it's a bit of both because it's, it's quite an expensive industry to enter into. Um, so there are some entry barriers in terms of dollars. So I think it's both sides because the advantage that we have is we are called what they call, we are new space driven. So we don't have competition from government space programs. So the new space sector tend to see us as a very innovative and entrepreneurial place to be able to come and settle. And will it allow a better connection with the rest of the world and, and bigger countries where space is a key feature? Absolutely, absolutely, because all of these sectors are interconnected. Um, so it will make sure that we have sectors and industry that provide, um, like, you know, Dawn Aerospace, who provides um, eco-friendly engines. Uh, they've been part of the launch of SpaceX. So having some of that collaboration um, knowledge sharing and investment across entities. Mm. So Judith Collins will certainly put her own stamp on this portfolio. What can she realistically achieve in three years? Um, yeah, well, back to the three-year cycle. Um, I do think it should be a long-term focus, so hopefully this will stay beyond Judith Collins and that we can start that she might play some of the foundation work um, to be able uh, to grow the sector and to attract especially investment into the sector. What are some of those longer-term goals, do you think? You mentioned investment. I think the long, longer-term goals is investment, um, growing the entrepreneurial sector, but also growing employment opportunities. Um, these are high-growth, high-tech sectors, so it is um, more skilled and highly skilled staff. You know, currently Rocket Lab has a persistent 100 job vacancies at all times. Um, so being able to fill those job vacancies with um, homegrown talent as well as attracting talent to come and settle in New Zealand. What about responsibilities on the universities to bring those people through? That would be great. I think um, once you have an industry or the foundations of an industry, it's easier for the universities to be able to start focusing on those areas where they can supply some of those skills. And what is the ultimate vision, do you think? How will space be treated in, say, 10, 20 years' time in New Zealand? Um, hopefully as a significant commercial entity um, that will provide us with some innovative 
um, and attractive ways of growing our investment, but also making sure that we are part of the international global market and you know, increase our exports in this area. Ilmari Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. In today's last Toil and Trouble interview of the year, Young Hunter Lawyers Senior Associate Jared Elwell joins me to discuss what's happened this year and to look ahead to the very substantial changes on the horizon in employment law next year. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Dita. <laughs> now let's ta- start with the obvious first starting point, which was just yesterday, um, the scrapping of fair pay agreements under urgency. Yes, and that was part, of course, of the coalition government's 100-day plan, which they promised to get through in 100 days and uh, before Christmas. So, yeah, that, uh, along with the expansion of the 90-day trials, are on their list of major employment reforms prior to Christmas. And then there's a number of other things that they're looking at after Christmas. Um, The 90-day trials will be progressed faster and it'll be without consultation. Is that normal or is that anything to be concerned about or...? Yeah, it's interesting. There's always questions over passing legislation through urgency because it doesn't obviously go through the the normal rigour where submissions are allowed and select committees uh, made up of uh, across parties uh, have a chance to have an input and perhaps some reconsideration. So uh, it is something that's used quite frequently by governments, especially new governments wanting to sort of stamp their mark on uh, on Parliament and and on New Zealand. But uh, yeah, there are question marks about it because of the lack of debate, really. Okay, let's talk about the reform of health and safety law regulations. Not too many details here, but what's the upshot? Yes, not many details to talk about this stage, Dita. Probably in the new year something will emerge, but um, Brooke Van Velden has been appointed Minister for Workplace uh, Relations and Safety, and this is one of the Act policies that became part of the coalition agreement, so we can sort of watch the space and, and see what happens there. Act tends to be a party that promotes itself on cutting red tape and bureaucracy, so they may look at some ways to simplify the processes, but uh, yeah, we're all a bit unclear as to what that might entail. They've really been very influential in the the workspace, haven't they, in terms of what they've got through in these coalition agreements? Very much so. And I remember we met prior to the election and discussed some of Act's proposals, and it seems like most of those have actually made it through into the coalition agreement uh, without perhaps some of the detail that uh, we would like to see. (laughs) Um, But that, again, may emerge in the new year. Uh, And, yeah, just a little bit of New Zealand First. So the only real part of New Zealand First contribution I could see directly in the employment space was a commitment to raising the minimum wage at uh, moderate increases. So what that what that will mean uh, is obviously uh, a question to be answered uh, <laughs> yeah, come be next answered. year. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we hadn't sort of gone into in detail, and you're saying that we probably can't go into it in detail, but setting an income threshold above which a personal grievance cannot be pursued. Can you explain why that would even be a thing? Yes, interesting one, and not something that I think was publicised at all prior to the election, so it sort of seems to be something that's emerged perhaps uh, during those days of uh, coalition talks and and parties uh, having an input. 
it, it's something that happens in Australia. So under the Fair Work Act in Australia, employees who are paid over, I think it's currently 167500 it gets uh, revised, so 167500 per annum, including all the benefits that they get, are not able to pursue a personal grievance or the equivalent of a personal grievance there. And I understand the thinking around that is that senior executives, people at that sort of level can pretty much take care of themselves. Uh, they perhaps have more resources to avail themselves of lawyers and negotiate exits. And in my experience, that is often the case, but not always. And I, I think there are some fish hooks, especially considering it's it's a removal of a legal right. So like anything, like the 90-day trials, you're removing a legal right for a group of people to raise an issue and go through the legal process. So that should yeah. always be treated with some caution. And of course, $167,000 is a lot of money, but it's not in the realms of senior, senior executives, is it? It's quite a low threshold, I would think. Yeah, there would be a lot of probably middle managers in Mm. many organisations around that. And in Australia, it includes a superannuation contribution, uh, other benefits, uh, motor vehicles. So it can quickly add up. You you know, you Mm. could be on a base of 100,000 and then when everything's thrown in there, uh, be quite close to that threshold. And we've got no idea what that amount is going to be set in New Zealand, Mm. if if there is going to be one set. But hopefully this will go through some some rigorous debate. And the one of one of the other issues I think there is that Australia has more rigorous enforcement of health and safety legislation. And the examples I'm thinking of is bullying in the workplace. So we have WorkSafe who've had hundreds of complaints regarding bullying over the years. And I think they haven't investigated any at this stage or prosecuted any at this stage. Right. Whereas in Australia, the it's done state by state, but they seem a little bit more proactive. And there may be more protections there for people at that level because uh, it is something that can be experienced at any level of Absolutely. your employment. Absolutely. Especially in middle management when you have people on top of you and below you. Very much so. Yes, yes, yes. Caught it in the meat and the sandwich. Absolutely. Um, now, contractors versus employees. We, this is obviously one we have talked about before, but there are a few things in here that you've pulled out. What, what kind of stands out to you from this? Yeah, so interestingly, there's been some media coverage around the actual wording of uh, X proposals and as we said earlier in the interview it seems like X proposals have become pretty much government policy under the current coalition agreement and one of the their wording is uh, to maintain the status quo that contractors who have explicitly signed up for contracting arrangements uh, can't challenge their employment status in the employment court. So the, the word status quo has been looked at because the status quo is that they can currently. So we, we think that's a typo or a sort of unintentional uh, language there. But there are a few points which seem to be likely to come through if this policy is enacted mm. and that's a tidying up of section 6 which is the of the Employment Relations Act which is whether someone can challenge uh, the fact that they're an employee or whether they're a volunteer or in the exclusion being a contractor. So some of the points there are that there will need to be a written agreement that explicitly states that they are a contractor and that they do not have rights as an employee. Right. That seems reasonable. That seems fair. Yes, good in principle. Uh, I think a lot of people don't really read their contracts in detail mm. at the time. You know, there's a lot of buzz and excitement around starting a, a new new part of their lives and starting a new role. And perhaps 
some of us overlook uh, reading the detail and understanding the ex- actual meaning of the words. And there are also issues with people who don't have English as a first language yeah. uh, or aren't fluent uh, or highly literate. And, and quite a number of them are presented with these contracting arrangements and construction and other industries. That's right. And they also may not realise that the agreement as envisaged by Act doesn't... Um, well, does or doesn't, they, they may not realise what other work they can perform. So there's something about that in there, isn't there? Yes. So ACT is trying to sort of, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what ACT's thinking is exactly. I'm not involved <laughs> in the party. Uh, but I, I think they're trying to tidy up some of the alleged abuses and loopholes, so to speak, around contracting. And one of them has been the effectively independent contractor where you contract to us. Uh, we don't pay you any of your minimum employment entitlements, but you can't work for anyone else. And the classic example that comes up time and time again is courier cases, courier drivers, uh, and more latterly, Uber drivers. Yeah. Um, With many of these points, you have said, sounds good in principle, although how would this work in practice? Why might that not work in practice? Yes. So just imagine a courier driver at the moment, they're required to purchase a vehicle, brand that vehicle in the company's livery, uh, usually wear a uniform, purchase their communications equipment. And I just wonder how amenable a company will be to the contractor saying, oh, uh, I'm just popping across the road to your competitor and I'm going to be driving for a few hours for them. I'll, I'll be back later. Yeah. Uh, how does that sound? Uh, all sorts of issues, I think, can emerge from that. And again, the, the courier driver is a classic example and it won't always apply to all situations, but it is a real uh, litmus test. Of, of how this works in practice. Yeah. And yeah, the, the other company itself might not be too keen to take on a driver that's actually promoting their competitor. So yeah. seeing how this works in practice, that, that ability to work for others uh, and not be terminated for refusing to do work might uh, sound sound better in principle and yeah. be a lot harder work in practice. <laughs> so that's one you're saying here that uh, a business cannot terminate the contract of a person for not accepting a specific task. That was an Uber thing, wasn't it? Yes, and that's something that's in a lot of the contract agreements, especially around career drivers, yeah. so that that, that yeah. being locked in, and it applies across the board. It's usually put in as a clause in agreements, and that's something that when the real nature of the relationship's looked at, it's like, well, hey, you're not just the painting contractor who comes and goes and picks and chooses their job. You actually have to do all of these things, and you're restricted from doing other things. Yeah, yeah. As you say, difficult, perhaps. Um, can you tell us about what you think the most significant thing that happened this year in employment law was? Yeah, I think it has been the Uber cases that have come out and there's they're commonly referred to as Uber 1 and Uber 2. Uh, one finding that the Uber drivers were contractors and not employees and then the second one finding that they were employees and not contractors. <laughs> so we're in this unusual situation of the law being unclear. Um, these are subject to appeal. The Uber 2 case is subject to appeal and that's to be heard in front of the Court of Appeal next year sometime, I believe. And even ACT has indicated that they are going to wait until that decision's come through before sort of implementing some of these reforms around contractor versus employee. So it'd be really yeah. interesting to find out how the Court of Appeal treats this and whether it, it goes any higher. And just by way of conclusion as to next year, it seems as though employment lawyers, if there's anything we can say, we can say employment lawyers will be busy. 
<laughs> yes, and it, it's usually the case. <laughs> There's usually plenty of work out there. Uh, probably one of the big things will be if this legislation is brought in, how it's interpreted and how it's applied and how the courts rule on it. So that will be something that will be sort of a um, an evolving picture. And a lot of the other things that are being unwound as well, it's, it's going to be full on, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Gerard, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Dita. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> and that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 